morning. Today's reading is from Genesis, chapter 27, 41, through chapter 28, verse 22. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Bathsheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go 
and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give full length to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy. Well, before we jump in, a couple quick things I forgot to mention on the uh, Afghan refugee with vacuums and, and, car- and carpets. If you want to drop them off at church, you can do that as well. You don't have to have them shipped. You could purchase it at a local store and bring it in. And also, we're looking for somebody on Friday, if anybody's interested in driving what we take into the uh, Catholic Charities. I think it's in Tualatin, so not that far. Uh, let the church office know if you're willing Friday to, to drive our stuff and drop it off. Well, we're back into the life of Jacob, a story of struggle a story of grace, and Jacob's life, it really functions on these two levels, struggle and grace. On the one level, he struggles with all kinds of individuals. Remember, he's stolen the inheritance from his brother, and now the blessing he's gotten from his father. And we'll, we'll see in a couple of weeks at his struggle with Laban, the struggle he has with his uncle. We will look at this. And on another level, he has encounters with God throughout his life. So two levels, struggles with people and encounters with God. One we're going to look at today. His life is a story of struggles and grace. And isn't that the story of your life too? A story of struggles and a story of grace. And that's why I think Jacob is so relatable to us. That's why I think we can relate to him and why he, he, he's uh, understandable to us. He, he's, he's really, he's like the most unlikely candidate to be chosen in the Bible, to be the one through whom the Messiah would come to the world. The Messiah, the snake crusher, remember from Genesis 3, the promised one, the promised one to Abraham, the promised one to Isaac, and now to Isaac's son, Jacob. He's kind of the anti-hero of sorts. He's like an anti-hero. He doesn't really have any chapters where he just shines out. And we're going to focus most of our time today on the dream, but a quick Little recap, we know Isaac here has taken a turn. He willingly now blesses Jacob rather than being tricked into blessing him. He willingly blesses Jacob in our passage today, showing that he does believe the promises of God, that the older shall serve the younger. You remember that promise that Rebecca got? It flipped the things upside down. The, the, uh, the older would serve the younger. The younger would get the blessing. And Abraham sends him on his way today in this story at Rebekah's prompting, his wife, with a charge to marry a woman from the family, from the daughters of of Laban. And that would be Jacob's uncle and 
his mother's brother, Rebecca. And now he's a man on the run. He's like a fugitive from sin as he flees the family drama and leaves it behind in his wake as he runs. This is Jacob today. This is Jacob's darkest moment in his life. It's his darkest moment. And he must have, I've got to think, in this moment, been questioning heaven, been thinking about heaven, been wondering, what are you doing, God? But it's in this darkest moment that heaven explodes, actually, in a good way, and God's grace descends in the most unlikely way. So let's look this morning at this stairway to heaven. David and the band were prepping Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. They just couldn't get the lead down today for us. They're gonna, we're going to next week try to get them to, to bring that one for us. Um, bad joke, but nonetheless, it made me think of that this week. We're focusing on the theme of heaven. And if it makes you think about that, that's a good thing. We're focusing on the theme of heaven today and the intersection of heaven and earth. How do they intersect? How do they come together? Here's where we're headed. Let me just give it to you where we're headed today. We're going to talk about how heaven can sometimes seem far and out of reach from us, or God is far away from us. But then we're going to talk about how it's a lot of times in our darkest moments that heaven breaks in to our lives. And then finally, we're going to look at the gateway to heaven. How is heaven accessible in the here and now? So let's begin with Jacob's flight. And how we too can do this. We take flight because of sin. And a lot of times in that sin and in that darkness, we feel that heaven is closed to our reach. Like a glass ceiling. Like something I just can't break through. Like my prayers are just bouncing off the roof and crashing back down on my own head. It brings us to 28.10. Take a look there. Like I said, we're going to focus mostly on the dream today. So Jacob's out on the run. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. It's this brilliant little summary of two verses there. The author's wanting us to see, and he means for us to see, this is Jacob's darkest moment of his life. Sin has made him a fugitive. Sin has, has put, him, put him on the run. And, and this was Jacob's problem. Jacob believed in God. Jacob believed the word of God. But that's not his problem. His problem is this. He'd even gone to great lengths to secure the blessing and inheritance. But while Jacob believed in God, he did not have an abiding sense of God's presence upon his life. That's his problem. Sure, I, I, I want the blessing. I, I believe it's real. I believe God's going to do something through this blessing. But he had no current experiential real sense of God, God's closeness, God's intimacy, God's provision in his life. He had not had an encounter that had utterly transformed him from the inside out. He, you might say Jacob is sort of, he's becoming. He's becoming. He hasn't arrived yet. Maybe he never does in Genesis. He's still more scoundrel than saint, one commentator put it this week as I was reading. He's becoming. And because he hasn't had this grace awakening encounter with God yet, he's on the run. He's fleeing for his life. In fact, his mother told him, get out of here. 
he doesn't know how to handle the tragedies of his life yet, except with running. He doesn't know how to access heaven and God's real presence. And that's what's meant by this, this brilliant two verses there that I just read. In just a few words, the authors painted Jacob's darkest moment for us. How do we see that? First of all, he's in between two destinations. He's left his home behind, but he's not yet at Haran. He's in the middle of two destinations and he hasn't arrived at the other one yet. It's like driving on that long stretch of highway and seeing your gas light come on and then the next sign saying, next service 100 miles. (laughs) That's kind of what we're supposed to get there. The in-between two places. I broke down once with a buddy of mine middle of, like, middle of nowhere, Texas, one of those exact situations. I'm driving, gas pedals to the floor. The car's not moving. It's slowing down. We broke down just in between basically 100 miles between two cities. Man, we felt isolated and alone pre-cell phone days. So you get it, right? Some of you do who are older than 20. Um, Yeah, he's in between two places, two destinations. And he comes to a place. Did you hear it in, this, in the verses? This nameless place. In fact, the word place is mentioned three times there. He comes to the place. He takes a stone of the place. He lays down in the place. An empty place. It's an empty place without, with no name, without the comforts and familiar, familiarity of home. It's a place where nobody knows your name. Not everybody. Right? Nobody. And the sun is setting too. This is just in two verses all this is packed in there. The sun is setting to to mirror for us a physical darkness that mirrors what's going on in his internal darkness. The sun is going down on Jacob. He's all alone, no friends, no money, no pillow even. That's kind of a weird detail, isn't it? That's weird. He puts his head on a stone. It's not because he hadn't heard of mypillow.com yet. He just put his head on a stone. uh, The author wants us to see there, you know, if you had an extra knapsack, if you had an extra cloak, if you had uh, anything, really, what would you do? You'd roll it up and you'd put your head on it. It means he was penniless and alone. His life had totally fallen apart. From a fraud in a costume lying to his father, to a brother Esau who now wants to kill him, and is even comforting himself with the rage to kill his own brother, And a mother he will never see again. Remember, she dies before he ever gets back there to their home. Where's the blessing, God? Where where are the promises, God? Do you see how heaven could feel out of reach from this man? But what we see here is our natural predicament, your natural predicament. We know the promises of God, and yet we look at our life with our eyes. You look at what's going on in your day-to-day, and you say, where? Where are you, God? Where are you? Heaven feels closed. How could you let this happen to me, God? You told me I'd have the land, the family, and the Messiah. What now, God? And don't you feel that sometimes, too? Maybe this morning you're feeling that. Heaven just feels closed. Maybe it's sin in your life or hard circumstances or things that haven't worked out the way you'd hoped. And it seems that the the door of heaven is, is closed to you. It just seems out of reach. But here's the thing. God himself seems out of reach here too to this man. 
at his darkest moment. Jacob knows the promises, doesn't he? He doesn't know the promise maker, though. Yeah, sure, he's heard the word, he's heard the promises, his grandparents just talk about all the time, but he doesn't know the promise maker. What do we see here? He's not repentant. He's fleeing here. He's not seeking out God here, is he? He's not calling out, he's not crying out, he doesn't have his arms upstretched to heaven. And some of you feel this today. Closed in in life. Or some some of you know someone in your life who's living this today, if not you, God and heaven just seem a million miles away. Or maybe you're caught right now in the middle of some sin, some temptation, and your temptation is to want to flee God rather than run towards God. We do that all the time. I got to get my life together before God will hear me or use me or or, or in service or bless me. We do that, all of us. Don't flee. Don't run. Here Jacob is at his lowest running and heaven is like a shut door. But he has this dream, doesn't he? I want to focus on that for a few minutes. This night, the nighttime brings this dream. Let's take a look at it. In Jacob's darkest moment, and in our darkest moments, many times that's when heaven breaks in, actually. And God actually does his best work in a lot of our darkest moments. Man, and what a dream that, what a dream it is, huh? I mean, can you imagine falling asleep and having that break into your consciousness in your warm bed, or as in his case, cold ground? Well, what's the dream? A ladder is set up on earth, and it stretches all the way to heaven. And in this dream, the angels of God are ascending and descending up and down upon it. But, you know, as I read it, and your translation might say a ladder, that's not really a great translation. I mean, think of that image. It's not that overwhelming. A ladder, and how many angels can go up and down a ladder at a time? One, right? I mean, just picture that. They're like climbing up and down, and, you know, you're seeing up each other's skirts as they come. It's like, it's not a very, it's not a very powerful <laughs> image, and not the best translation. It'd be clumsy and crowded. What we've got here is more like a a, a stairway, probably. A wide, almost like maybe a a, a ziggurat. You've seen those maybe. A ramp or a grand staircase. And so that's kind of what we get here. This, what we're supposed to see, this is massive. You know, how many angels really, it couldn't be that grand with one ladder. This is supposed to be massive and it stretches up and it probably stretches out and there were angels all over it that means almost like an army of angels traveling back and forth and what were these angels what are they and what are we meant to see here I think Jacob's meant to see that they are the activity of God taking place between heaven and earth they're the mighty messengers angels are it really means a messenger, the word. They're, they're the emissaries of God going back and forth on the earth, going about God's business. That's what we're meant to see. 
And Jacob sees in his dream. These weren't, think now, cute little cherubs on little paintings or greeting cards. That's, that's, that's not what we're thinking about here. These are the arms of heaven outstretched towards earth. And it would have been for Jacob wonderfully terrifying to try to describe it. Wonderfully terrifying. And he does wake up afraid. We see that. This shows Jacob that God is on the move. Remember Narnia when they say Aslan is on the move. Something's happening. Something is at work here. God is working in and through in this moment in Jacob's life, these magnificent beings. It's kind of like Jacob's been given a a peek through and a peek into this this angel superhighway, to put it in our terms of today. This massive Think of a, you know, the largest freeway, highway you've been on, maybe eight lanes aside, six lanes aside. It's massive. And God was busy, is what he's saying to Jacob. But busy in a personal way. Did you catch it there in the dream? It says there that the Lord stood above it. Actually, probably it means more like beside Jacob. It could kind of go either way in the translation, above the ladder or beside it. I tend to think the more personal nature of God in this moment is that God is feeling more beside him there, and beside this angel superhighway. This was personal for Jacob. See, Jacob, you think your life has fallen apart. You think there is no hope for you. You think there's no return to the promised land. Well, you're running away, and I'm right here. I'm right here. He's hovering over him, and he's in his most defenseless state, isn't he? What's your most defenseless state? When you're asleep. And there he's lying asleep on the ground with nothing, and God is hovering over him. Did you ever go into when you had young children or actually young little babies and go into their room at night when they were asleep in the crib. And you you bent down over the crib and she just looked so precious sitting there. The look on her or his face, perfectly still, except for that you could see the little chest kind of rising, right? With little breath and falling with breath. And you bent down and you put your cheek right next to her breath, almost so you could feel it on your cheek. It didn't smell bad either. It's kind of, babies, it's kind of, it actually almost smells good. What's that? Uh, maybe that's weird, but for me it did. What an intimate picture we're meant to get of God here. Hovering over his sleeping child. Showing him his presence. To saying to Jacob, I'm near you. Not only near you, but then he goes on to speak these promises to him. Like a parent hovering over the crib. Maybe praying over your child while he slept or she slept. He goes on. Jacob hears some things in the dream. He says, I'll defend you. I will hover over you. I'll provide for you. And I will finish the promises I've started and spoke over your life. He gives him so much in this moment. See, you see it, Jacob, as the darkest moment of your life. And yet there's an angel highway streaming back and forth over your life. Where God 
whose work looks the brightest, you know where it is many times? It's on the darkest moments and darkest backdrop of your life. That's when it shines the brightest. God is hovering over you, not just Jacob, working behind the scenes in your life in a multitude of ways that if he was to give you a glimpse at, you would fall down. You would fall down in fear even, a great fear, a wonderful fear. He says, I'll go with you wherever you go and I will bless you. And if he peeled back that curtain for you, you know what you'd see? You would see that we believe a lot of lies about our lives. We believe a lot of lies about our lives when we tell ourselves that God is far or heaven is closed. See, the illusion is what we tell ourselves when a tragedy strikes, God's not near, he can't hear me, heaven is closed. Jacob's dream tells us, look, no, God is intimately close to your life. He's hovering over it. And the whole world is filled with my royal presence and power. That's what the angel stairway means. He says, your life is drenched with my touch. It's drenched with it. And this peek behind the curtain for Jacob was not to look at some kind of impotent Oz behind the curtain. No, he looked behind and it was an all-powerful God who was near, close, and hovering over him. You remember that place in the book of the book of Daniel with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. That story. Do you remember those guys? A fascinating little story there. The, the Israelites were were captive, a captive people to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And these three brothers were called to bow down, these three men were called to bow down to an idol and to give up their exclusive worship of Yahweh. And if they didn't, the punishment would have been. Uh, death. And kings at that time, you know, they really, they really didn't think, <laughs> throw them in a fire was his solution. We're going to burn them alive. We're going to throw them in a fiery furnace. Not the benevolent king you want to live under. Can you imagine? Surely God has abandoned us. This is what we're facing, a fiery furnace. Surely God has abandoned us. Surely we must flee. Heaven's closed. Where are you, God? Life is over. It's done. That's it. I, you, I mean, I, I could see how one of us would respond that way. And yet look how these three men respond. Take all these verses from Daniel. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your, of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Wow. Can you imagine saying that to the all-powerful king standing in front of you with, with the flick of his finger, you are gone from the face of the earth? That is not just the knowledge of God here for these three men. That is someone who has peeked behind the curtain and has seen the angel superhighway hovering over their lives. Someone who knows not just about God, but that God is present right there with them in that trial and his power is at work hovering over them. And guess what? They were given a peek behind the curtain in that story. They were thrown into the fire, the three of them. When the king and his men look in, how many did they see? Four. Four. God was right there the entire time. 
And he gave them and the bystanders a peek behind the curtain in that moment. We can't see it, but he's not remote. He is not gone. He is present in your fires too. He is there. We've talked about this before, I think in our gospel series, but we tend to view the world from a street-level view. All we can see is right, is right in front of us. We've got a picture popping up of our present. Here's us. This is right in front of us. This, we're all inside this building right now. And that's kind of how we see life. We see right in front of us. Not over to the other side of that building. Right in front of whatever's in front of us. Here's my day. Here's my problems. Here's my claustrophobic view on reality that's shrinking every moment. We only see the ground level, the day-to-day troubles and trials, the loneliness, the worry, the fear, whatever's right in front of us. Tyranny of the urgent, I think it's been called. But God has this zoomed out Google Earth view of reality. Now there we are. The orange circle. That's us. God sees everything in relationship to everything else. We can't see over the next horizon. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. But God not only sees over the next horizon, he sees the beginning from the end. All of it. He sees the connections not just from A to B, but A to Z, Alpha and Omega, right? He sees angels descending and ascending upon this earth. So, It's fairly normal when all we see is what's right in front of us, right? The street view. It's fairly normal when this is all you see to get mad at heaven. I'm just be honest with you. That is a fairly regular occurrence, probably normal circumstance, even in the life of a believer. To to, to have those thoughts and questions. We look at something and we say, well, I can't see a reason for this. I can't see a reason why this would happen in my life. And so because I can't see a reason, there there must not be one. But just because you and I can't see a reason for something going on in our life doesn't mean that God couldn't have one, at least. At least give him that. Doesn't mean he couldn't have one. And when we do cry out to God in anger or frustration and, and even maybe get mad at him, we're acknowledging we've got a God that's really big because you're frustrated and angry because you know he could make it stop like that. And that's why you're frustrated. That's why we get that way or get angry. But if we've got a God who's powerful enough to be able to do something about the problems in our life, and we know that, and that's why we've gotten angry and frustrated, couldn't we also have a God who's got a bigger picture and a bigger purpose that you can't see? That's got to be the case. If one is true, the other has to be true. And what he sees is angel armies swarming over your life. That's what he sees. And his presence is like a father hovering over the sleeping baby in a crib. So it's normal. It's normal to find yourself sleeping out in a nowhere place with no one around you and think heaven is close to you. That's normal. And in in that early stage is to ask, why, God? What are you doing? Are you there? What has happened? But it's what you do with that anger 
It's what you do with those moments of temptation to flee or turn on God or run from God. Well, when Jacob wakes up, what does he do? Does he wake up and go, cool dream, God. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was excellent. No, that's not what he does. No, he's terrified. He wakes up terrified. He says, God is here, and I think I'm starting to get it a little bit. He didn't seek God, remember? He's not looking for God. Remember, it's his darkest moment. It's his darkest moment. God doesn't come to him and put out the stairway and say, all right, Jacob, get to work. Get to work. You've blown it so far. You're not even going the right direction. Climb up and meet me at the top. Get to work, Jacob. No, he doesn't even say meet me halfway, Jacob. He could. He doesn't say the top. He doesn't say halfway. He comes all the way down. Heaven breaks into his life. Heaven comes down to him. And he graciously takes him in in his most vulnerable, sleeping, lonely moment. And you see, he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't throw him away. He doesn't say, you know what? Wrong guy. Let's start over with somebody else. Let's move on to the next one. What does he do? He comforts him with his presence. I mean, you look at this guy's life, and you and I would have been pretty quick to say, on to the next. On to the next. You've blown it. You've messed up. Look what you did with that one. You're not even going the right direction. How is it possible that God can do this? So what's the lesson here for us? Is it, again, be like Jacob? What do you think? Okay, good. I see a couple of heads shaking. No. Well, partially, he does wake up and worship God, but he doesn't respond very well even after that. Did you catch that in the reading? He kind of throws out an if-then ultimatum. Did you hear that? If God does this, and if God does this, and if God does that, well, then he'll be my God. Here's the lesson. Here's the answer. It's our final section today. The answer is discovering the gate, which Jacob talks about, the presence, which Jacob talks about, of God. These two things, they converge and come together in the Son of Man. So what happens? He wakes up. He worships. Okay, that's a good response, right? He worships. He sets up a memorial from this stone that he was sleeping on in a way that would look like, you ever seen those stones at the ocean? Or sometimes they set them up and balance them really kind of precariously. He set up the stone in a way that you would come across and go, well, that's not how that stone should be laying. And he pours oil all over it. Look at verse 17 with me. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There's place again. Now it's not a nowhere place. This is none other, and this place is now none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Wow. Look at this. This place, this no-name place where I put my head down, maybe cried myself to sleep last night, this is the gate of heaven. 
this is God's gate of heaven. You know what Jacob's doing there, or the author's doing there? He's taking our minds back to a story we've already heard before. Can you think of it? Way back in Genesis 11, so that's a year and a half ago for us probably now, there were a people, do you remember them? They wanted to build a bridge to heaven. They wanted to build a tower from heaven to earth. They really wanted to get close to God. They wanted to make a great staircase and build their way into God's presence. Uh, it's, it's a ziggurat, basically. Those old ancient worshiping temples that had big either stairs up or an avenue up the side, a stairway to heaven. It was the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And here's how we know the connection is there. Do you know what the word Babel means? Not as we would think, babbling in our day. But the word Babel actually means the gate of God. Or the gate of heaven. So they thought they could build their way back to a God. They would ascend those stairs. They would descend those stairs. They would go up and down that highway. It was an up and down, up and down to placate God and make a good name for themselves. Kind of like putting on the goat hair. <laughs> to appear just like something you're not to someone who's important. It was like a treadmill. It was, it was religious works for the sake of of, of earning favor with God, much like Esau in our story actually today, when Esau hears his father say to Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite woman, he goes out and he marries one of Ishmael's sons. How, do you think Isaac would be pleased if he went out and married Ishmael's son, if you remember back in the story? Like a last-ditch effort to marry his dad's brother, Ishmael's daughter, like it would earn him the favor back. Well, if that's what he wants, well, I'm going to go out and do it then. I'm going to go out and do it. That's not going to earn him the favor back. Now Jacob looks and says, the gate of heaven comes to me. The gate of heaven came to me. I did nothing to earn this. I don't deserve this one bit. And our ancestors actually got it all wrong. We can't build to heaven. Heaven has to come down to us. God has built a stairway down to us. That's grace. That's a road of grace. And God comes down in this moment to Jacob to a nowhere place, to a nobody man who has blown up his life and he intercedes in love. That's our God. That's what grace is. This is why the gospel is so radical. Everything in your life, everything in your world says build up. Everything. Everything says, put on the costume. Make yourself look good to whatever standards you want to decide. Great, but build up. Everything in your life says that. Only the gospel says, no, God's got to come down to you. He's got to descend. God must find you. God must come down to you. He brings his presence into your life. No Babel Tower will get us there. Jacob at least was getting there. At least with this dream, he was starting to see that. But how? How does he come? There's a place in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where Jesus is talking to 
Nathaniel, uh, the disciple. Well, Philip had just gone out, actually, to find his friend Nathaniel. And he went to him and he told him, hey, Nathaniel, there's really something fascinating that's happened. We have found the Messiah. Nathaniel's like, okay. <laughs> Remember the one Moses wrote about, John writes in his gospel. The one Moses wrote about, we found him. It's Jesus from Nazareth. You know what Nathaniel says? Well, that's a nobody, nowhere place. <laughs> and that's a place that nobody would ever come from. That's a nowhere place with nobody ever that would come from that. And so Jesus addresses this man, Nathaniel, and he comes to him and says, Hey, Nathaniel. They meet face to face the first time. And he says, You're such an honest man. You really are an honest man. Nathaniel, Nathaniel looks at him and he's like, I mean, wait, do you, do you know me? Do you know who I am? How could you know that? Why would you say that about me? And Jesus says to him, I saw you, Nathaniel, under the fig tree. And whatever he was doing under that fig tree, we don't know. But it had to be something in that moment, in that moment, that was enough to cause him in that moment to be blown away, absolutely blown away, like jaw-dropping, Oh, no, no, you, you are the Messiah. Nobody could know that. Nobody saw me there. I was absolutely alone under that fig tree. Maybe cried myself to sleep even there with my head on a stone. I was totally alone. How could you know that? You must be the Messiah. You're the son of God, he went on, the king of Israel. You know what Jesus said to him? Wonderful words. Jesus answered him. He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He went on, you'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, that's a key. That means listen up. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus says I am the place of God's presence. I am the one on whom the angels descend and ascend. I'm the link between heaven and earth is what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. I'm the link. I'm the gate Jacob was waiting for. I'm the gate he saw in his dream. It was a stairway of grace coming down to him. The gateway between heaven and earth wasn't going to be a stairway. It was a person, Jesus Christ. That's what he told Nathaniel. And when you understand that, when you interact with that, when you believe that, when you base your life on that, do you know what happens? The floodgates of heaven open up in your life. The floodgate of heaven spreads over your life. So great. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't give us steps like every other religion of the world or everything we create. Build up, build up, build up, build your resume. He doesn't say do this and do this and then you'll reach the top. The top. He says, no, I'm the one step. I'm the gate of heaven and I've actually fulfilled all the requirements for you. That's what we get in this. I've lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. He was the one taken out of, or out to, I should say, a nowhere place for you. Taken outside the city, taken out to a nowhere place, 
He was the one who became desolate. He was the one who became penniless with, with actually, you know what, not even a stone to lay his head on. You know what he said? No place to lay his head. That's the one. And forsaken by everyone. You remember his words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that he could be the link between heaven and earth for you. So that he could be the gateway to God. You might not be able to know why the sufferings of God have come into your life. Why you might be in your darkest moment. You might not be able to pinpoint that. But when you think about him like that and think about what he went through for you to be that gateway, it can't be whatever's going on in your life cannot be because he doesn't love you. Right? It can't be that. What God was willing to descend like that and go through that for you and suffer that for you? None. All other gods say, build your staircase. Build your staircase. Build your tower. Only Jesus Christ comes down to us. Look at that fact. It's by sheer grace. And when you see that, heaven opens up. And when you see that, understand that Jesus is the stairway, you'll not only just find that he's the gate, but you'll actually gain a real experience, a real sense of his presence that Jacob was missing before this dream, that Nathaniel was obviously missing before his revelation. You'll sense his presence. You'll see him standing over you, not condemning you, not dropping you, but with unconditional love. That's the God of the Bible. And that's God's presence. It's in a place, it's in a person. And that person, he, he's everywhere you go if you've trusted him. You can't go to a place, and the same way you can't go to a place where you haven't been or where you're not in that moment, kind of a philosophical conundrum. You've never been to a place where you haven't been, but you, know, you can't go to a place well, you're not. You're just there. You're there. And like that, Jesus is there wherever you go. The place where you are is his place. He resides in you and he's with you. And he comes to us, I would say, not even in spite of us. You might look at Jacob and go, yeah, he came to Jacob in spite of Jacob. I don't think it's that. I think he comes to Jacob because of the messed up life he has. I think he's, att I mean, he's attracted to that in some way. He doesn't come to, say, to Jacob and say, man, I got to work on this loser. <laughs> he could have, and he would have been justified in doing that. No, I think that's actually what attracted God's grace to him. I mean, isn't that where Jesus went? He went to the most downtrodden, broken, outcast people. Why? He's a God of love and grace. He doesn't expect you to get it together before he comes to you. He comes to you. Jacob's lonely broken, defenseless, asleep, wearing the costume to please his father. And God says, that's the one I want to bless. <laughs> that's the one I want to come down and wrap in my arms and sniff his little baby breath. That's weird, but that's, you know, that brings the image back into your mind. That's the one. And yet Jacob's response is not great. He does worship, but remember, he is a work in progress. Okay, God, if you do this, if you keep all the promises, then I will serve you. God still sticks with him. Think about that. That could have been another moment. Jacob, the dream. If then, 
He still sticks with him there. It's incredible. He still hadn't fully come to grips with grace. God giving himself absolutely for you. May God help us understand the grace of Jesus, who is that gate, who is that link between heaven and earth. Pray with me, will you? Jesus, you're the gate. Not only the gate, you're the step. And a step that's come our way, not the other. Thank you for being so gracious to connect the story of Jacob and the ladder to Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for giving those words to Nathaniel that could help us make that connection that you are active. You are working in your followers' lives. You are present. You are hovering over them. And you have come to us to make a way back to God. May we appreciate that more today. May we grasp the sense of grace a bit more today. And may we turn from our sin, not from God, but turn from our sin back to you, our Savior. The gate of heaven, Christ our Lord. Amen.